Welcome. This is Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast, and I'm uh, I'm excited again. I don't know where this conversation's going. I, I'm trying to put Peter in a box, and I can't do that. So um, I asked Peter earlier, "How do you want me to introduce himself?" And he said, "As a disruptor." So there you go. Um, at the end of the show, we'll have a we'll have an idea where he fits in. But I'm really excited to talk to him because we met on, like I do a lot of my guests on LinkedIn. And I was um, either him and I were pulled into a conversation or we were introduced through somebody's statements or comments, but really intrigued in um, his initiatives that he's working on and kind of his mindset with um, specifically addiction and substance use distress and then mental health overall. But I have a lot to talk about today, Peter. So uh, sit back, put your seatbelt on and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Looking forward to it. And, uh yeah. So what's a disruptor, man? One of many, I, I guess. Uh, I, guess I, was, I was trying to cherry pick. I'm not very good with the labels, but um, I guess I also identify as a recovering clinician, not, not only as a person in however one wants to call it or identify with it. I don't like to really be a word policeman, but um, a person in recovery uh, who then went into the clinical world um, and I got kind of disillusioned with clinical practice in some ways. Um, so then I would almost refer to myself as a recovering clinician as I then kind of evolved into more program design and executive or administrative roles within the space and, and disruptor in the sense of what burnt me out, what, what I thought wasn't working was, I mean, we, we hear a lot about in this space, a lot of trending and, and topics around the broken system, but you know, why is it broken? How is it broken? How is it so different in, in many regards than every other facet of healthcare or behavioral or mental health? Uh, so really the, the system needed disrupting. Um, the system needed in a very positive way. Um, at the same time, you know, I, 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 I um, you know, kind of one of the inmates running the asylum in some regards, you know, I, I had to um, <laughs> enter treatment myself. Uh, and I was in need of help. That was back in a day when there was just one size fits all, one you know prevailing ideology behind it, and really one way was the only way. Um, Is that the AA you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. Um, and in some yeah. regards, yeah. you know, the twelve steps are where my DNA of this journey lies, and the DNA of a lot of who, you know, or or where my transformation came from. Um, but that being said, it also in many regards shaped what then, you know, evolved as clinical practice, kind of tail wagging the dog um, policy, mm-hmm. uh, even down to other areas within that system, insurance reimbursement, criminal justice system. So it became very difficult from a practitioner standpoint, from a research scientific standpoint, you know these things aren't really jiving, that there's ideology and fellowship and a lot of beliefs. And then there's science and research and kind of cutting edge mm-hmm. practices and essentially a whole other world that was happening parallel. And this world of recovery, of treatment, of recovery communities, AA, 12-step fellowships was very, I'd say, um, isolated in many regards, very closed off. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And a big thing that 
I was gravitated towards that was also happening. I'm kind of going on tangents. You were right about put the seatbelt on because towards the end of the day, I, I, it's a little. <laughs> oh, we're just getting started, man. I, I'm worse than um, I'm worse than that. But another thing that was happening was, you know, a real kind of polarization also of, you know, am I an abstinent based or twelve stepper versus of this versus of that, and that was a big problem also. That, you know, in addition to the system being broken and we can get into all that unpacking of, of what's wrong there. There was a cultural kind of phenomenon and movement or lack thereof that I, I you know, also kind of felt, and, and I'm not the only one, I'm not coming up with this by myself, mm-hmm. um, needs disruption uh, and you know, this us versus them, or why can't we all coexist type of thing um, and find common ground and, and really realize I, I you know, I'm doing a clinical training on integrated harm reduction psychotherapy. And a lot of times harm reduction is looked at as antithetical to abstinence-based treatment. You know, it's not at all. It's right. They right. absolutely can coexist, are very synergistic. Um, there is absolutely nothing mm-hmm. about harm reduction that even contradicts abstinence basis uh, in theory and modality. It's just there, there's a wider envelope. So um Back to the original point of disruption, we just need to do that. Widen the envelope, you know, break that box. It's pretty clear that if if what we were doing was working, yeah, we just can you speak a little louder, right? It, yeah, it's pretty clear if what we were doing was working, we would just do more of it. And it's it's you know painfully clear looking at the statistics that what we are doing is not working, and so we need more options we need more arrows in the quiver and i have i've kind of run into this and i've only five i'm only five years into this mental health uh, advocacy space peter and i i get frustrated because everybody thinks they have the solution and you know one person will say it's aa that's the best way someone else will say you know, uh, harm reduction. That's, that's the only way someone else will say, Nope, it's, it's a choice model. People can just choose to quit. It's a moral failing. I mean, you just gotta just, just like, you know, quit like I did. I just quit one day. Um, I don't go to meetings to me. It was just, I quit. Um, I, I didn't want to complicate it. And so I could easily take my experience and say, that's the way it should be. And I think that's, that's my frustration, Peter, with this whole, recovery, advocacy, mental health, every scenario, even suicide awareness is it's so agenda driven. It's so my story must be the right way because it's my story and everyone's siloed. Not many people are working together and I'm trying to break that. That's what my tour was about this summer, getting in an RV, driving around the country, not about me, but about we, about how can I learn from Peter, take his life experiences and his, you know, clinical experiences. And how can I take a couple things from that and then meet somebody else, take a couple things from them and then ultimately empower myself to become a better person and those people around me. And that's the, been the, that's the good thing about this industry is that there are a lot of people out there with a lot of really good valid uh, arguments and positions and strategies. And, but then there's, there's a lot of ambiguity and a lot of frustration because what works for one person doesn't work for somebody else. You know, that's, that's a challenge. It, it absolutely is. And by the way, it goes both ways about learning, you know, and that's another thing about even things like, you know, clinical practice, 
doesn't have to be constrained to just clinical practice. You know, in some regards, mm-hmm. I don't want to use those words should or shouldn't. You know, speaking of clinical practice, you're not supposed to say that, but uh, mm-hmm. it shouldn't be because life doesn't exist in that vacuum. So you know, there's always this: what could I learn from somebody doing this that might work this way, or that could impact that. So I, I kind of subscribe to this belief that everything's learning. Everything is about collaboration in many regards. And in like almost a fractal sense from a practitioner, right? Boots on the ground. There will never be a case with any patient, client, however one wants to call it, that a single treatment provider can produce the optimal results. Collaboration right. is always the key. Integrated, comprehensive treatment or, or whatever verb you want to use is a key to desired outcomes. That being said, you know, one of my favorite phrases, especially working in this space and field is nothing's everything, you know, because of exactly what you said, you know, one of the greatest themes throughout, you know, the, the, the rehab industrial complex is some form or another of this is everything, you know, this is what it's all right. about. And nothing is, right. nothing can be by nature of that. And a real challenging aspect going back to, and I say it kind of half joking, but you know, the whole inmates running the asylum thing is it almost mimics an, the only other kind of organization that I could think of that that's somewhat similar. And I mean it in an in organic way also is something like the Defense Department and Pentagon, where you have this enormous percentage of the workforce, the staffing are veterans of some form or another. So you're in a very particular mindset with a very set kind of paradigm under a very strict values and belief system. Very similar case with substance abuse treatment. By and far, the Mm -hmm. overwhelming majority of the workforce are people in recovery. So that phenomenon that you're describing, as true as it is, And as easy as it is to, and and I can point a lot of fingers and I do, you know, very frustrated at times and angry with a lot of things that have happened within this industry. And the list is very, I mean, as as you've experienced very personally, um, the list is, is too long to even go down and itemize. But one mitigating factor is because you have all these people in recovery and, you know, essentially are stakeholders, you have that adamance and that fundamentalism and it's a really kind of fine line to you know to walk and balance because it's the best of intentions but it's really it's backfiring yeah i just i get frustrated again like i said because um i see well-intended people uh especially on social media that end up going down rabbit holes that are very unproductive. And that's one of the reasons why I'm not overly active on social media right now in regards to just interjecting or injecting my, my thoughts on comments. It's like, I be honest with you, I'm too busy out here in the trenches actually doing things. I don't have a lot of time to sit on social media and argue with people, whether this safe, safe needle, you know, disposal and or availability or fentanyl test, test strips are good or bad. I, I just don't have the time for that. I don't even think that's kind the, of got burned and out. I'm sorry that. to cut you off with that, but I also don't even think that's the audience to even focus on. You know? Good point. And in many point. regards, those and, and why I'm also somewhat sensitive to that term disruptor, you know, where like in some regards, a lot of the instigators of those arguments, the, the people can find problems right. in any solution you know, of a certain mindset. 
and like you're saying, I don't want to waste my time with them. I want to focus on who are working towards solutions, who are like-minded in terms of philosophical beliefs of let's collaborate, let's look synergistically, let's look more comprehensively and integratively. Uh, so yeah, I, I very much agree. And it's such, you know, I mean, um, the evolution of this, this um, industry with, with mental health is becoming uh, quicker and more adaptive. And we have things like cognitive behavioral theory, CBT out there, you have TMS, uh, you know, the brainwave technology stim simulation stimulations. Um, you got the burgeoning psychedelic, you know, resurgence, I guess, because this psychedelics isn't new. Exactly. It's been around probably, probably that's the oldest method is psychedelics out of everything we're looking at right now. Yet in the seventies and eighties that just got set aside because of the war on drugs. And it's unfortunate because it looks like we had a lot of good uh, progress in regards to um, psychedelics being, uh, you know, being, being a tool, uh, an arrow in the quiver, as I like to say, um, not an end all be all, not, not a cure for everyone's mental health. Probably some people are just, is going to be a really bad experience. I full disclosure have never had a psychedelic experience, but I think as an advocate and seeing the numbers all going in the wrong direction, um, I, I better be open-minded to just about anything right now. And plant-based medicine to me seems just very logical. Um, you know, it's been used by indigenous people for thousands of years. And um, again, if, if what we were doing was working, um, I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be overly concerned right now about, about just double downing on our current efforts. But have you seen... Um, have you seen the fix, uh, Johan Hari's uh, nine-part documentary with uh, Samuel L. Jackson? Yeah. Voice. Um, What'd you think about it? I just got, I just saw I, it last I think week. His premises are really sound, you know. And going back to presents a good case. You know, going back to where he originally came on the scene, you know, with that TED talk of you know everything you thought you knew. Yeah. Um, and I very much believe. <clears throat> Not to contradict that everything, you know, nothing's everything. Um, but I do believe that certain things are, you know, kind of like force multipliers or really, you know, of such critical importance that they do kind of rise to the top. You know? um, one of those things being connection, lifestyle, and, and basically a lot of the things that are out of that clinical envelope, you know, that, that in some regards mm -hmm. don't have diagnostic statistical measurement tools around them. So they kind of get lost in the ethosphere. Uh, right. And so I think, you know, points that he's making in that documentary, there, there's such an exciting new, just, you know, whole library of, of material. I mean, I, I can learn more now in some regards watching Netflix than I can in two I know, years of, I know. It's of crazy. clinical schooling. Uh, it's really fascinating. Yep. And it, it, I think, you know, getting back to something like psychedelics, which is trending so much, it's such a hot topic. Um, it's almost mm -hmm. mimicking some of the other models that we saw in substance abuse treatment, a wild west, you know, a lot of silver bullets, a lot of charlatans, mm -hmm. a lot of grandiose mm -hmm. claims. And, and you hit the nail on the head. You know? <laughs> yep a tool, a quiver in the arrow. That being said, you know, psychedelics are one of a few things that do represent this real just paradigm shift disruptor, you know, uh, just real seminal game changing moment in where we can 
potentially see and not even potentially where we are seeing and, and I have seen firsthand in practice uh, results that were just unheard of, uneven fathomable in some regards. Right. And, and I was the greatest skeptic of them all, you know, coming from that more traditional 12 yeah. step based original philosophy, schooling and training, then advancing into clinical training, kind of coming from more of an analytic background than a behavioral cognitive behavioral theorist applying that and relational. And, you know, it was, it was very kind of clear evolution to that, but, um, it, I'm just getting sidetracked. No, I was just going to jump in and, yeah, I know. I, I, I saw, um, and forgot the name of your child again. Layla, that's right. But a beautiful name. Um, I was thinking about, um, you talked about paradigm shift and all that. And, you know, the, my understanding when I listen to people talk about psychedelics from a mental health standpoint now, uh, or a mental wellness, um, um, uh, perspective is that there's this, we have as, as humans, this, as I like to say, kind of this illusion of self. I mean, there should be an illusion, but we really think there's a self entity. And so we run around life in this, you know, this robotic position where we're looking outwards and we rarely see life looking back at us unless we do it in a narcissistic or an egocentric manner. And my understanding is psychedelics releases us from that that prison where you basically lose your ego, not your identity, but your ego. I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems to me that would be a, a neat, um, a neat alternative or a neat experience for people that are looking to, um, you know, turn the lens a little bit on how they look at mental health, um, today. You know, I don't know. Um, like I said, I've never had an experience. I know many of my friends are now starting to do things such as ayahuasca retreats. I had Jonathan DePotter on my podcast. He runs Behold Retreats, and they're um, all over from, I think, Singapore, Thailand, Australia, Costa Rica. And he was talking about, you know, this this kind of this new renaissance or this awakening with psychedelics. But there's such a pushback. It's, it's just almost like it's like medically assisted treatment. It's like methadone. There's just pushback on people that are just so how can you fight fire with fire type thing? You know, why are you using drugs to to fight something that drugs created. And, and I, I don't have an answer really for that because I'm not a clinician, but how do you answer that question if someone, if someone pushes back on that? In so, so many ways, it because answer? it's not one question. It's almost like, you know, analogizing, right. and I don't keep, need to keep going to like warfare, but go figure it like, um, That's okay. It's, it's my like podcast, you can talk about anything versus <laughs> like this more modern, what we now know as asymmetrical, you know, warfare, you know, and, and so getting into those right. types of questions is really more metaphorical to that trench warfare where that's just not how things work. And so for medicated assisted treatments, one of the, the real precipitators of my kind of really becoming disillusioned with clinical practice was because the data and evidence was so clear on what was going on and the science behind what was going on was so clear. And then at the same time, culturally, pra practically, what we were seeing just from like a, a phenomenon standpoint was so crystal clear in that pushback that you were talking about to the point that there was really more mm -hmm. internal stigmatization than there were external barriers. All of the, the, the talking points, like you said, you're replacing one for another. It's not real you know, true. 
abstinence and recovery, a whole litany of talking points. Mm -hmm. But then you got into really what was going on and what were the arguments and almost similar to like another model or metaphors like COVID and vaccines, you know, is it just about mm. vax, don't vax, or do we talk about the science? Do we talk about the, the pathology? And, and so with medicated assisted treatment, you're not talking about one thing and you're not even talking about one modality, right. even something like buprenorphine. Some of the biggest problems with buprenorphine, in, in my opinion, according to a lot of the data and research, isn't the medication, the drug, the mechanism of action or efficacy itself. It's the models in which it's prescribed and the way in which the mode in which it's ingested, it becomes the most, hmm. the, um, it, it, a, it becomes diverted, you know, it, it's one of the most smuggled substances mm -hmm. there are right now. Um, in mm. jails, there's more Suboxone than anything going around. Um, it, really? it becomes so then in practice, so many of the problems that you then hear fast forwarding, oh, I can't get off it. This doctor just, you know, would write scripts, do this, do this. It really was where the rubber met the road and how it was being kind of introduced, prescribed the method and mode of ingestion and all of that versus having anything to do with how the actual medication worked. Fast forward to like right. something like a sublocate. Uh, when I was running this facility in New York, it was one of the first medical, real medically run substance abuse facilities. It was started by two physicians. They brought me on board to kind of run it, design a lot of it. And, and back to like TMS, we had TMS machines, we were doing chemical infusion. Right. And we started to get into this, what was at the time, by Indivere, a new substance called Sublocate. And I was okay. still a little on the fence with buprenorphine, which, you know, for operative standpoint, we talk about Suboxone, you know, because that really is the most normalized use of it. Uh, right. And then all the typical, you know, cliches with it. Now you have sublocate a one month injection of uh, the slow release with a very natural titration mm. mechanism becomes a wonderful exit drug. So now all of a sudden you don't have any of the compliance issues. You didn't have any of the issues of you can't get off of it. It became one of the easier medications to then titrate off of and to really be a wonderful exit drug out of but at hmm. the same time, provide right. that real proven efficacy of what that medication does to assist with treatment. And so you know, it's hard to just take on that argument as one argument because it's all right. You know, we've got so like, many right. medications that there is no argument. Do these work? You know, there right. can't be. There can be an argument and a valid one. All right. In practice, how are these medications being utilized? that's being addressed. Mm -hmm. And now another whole thing is it's not Matt as we knew it, you know, because now it's a more operative term is, is MAUD, M-O-U-D, you know, uh, oh, yeah. you know, medications for opioid use disorder that we use to help with the, and that's where even things like psychedelics, other plant-based medicines. I mean, our physicians with recovery spot at that time were, integral in getting opioid use disorder as a pre-existing condition for prescribing medical marijuana. Um, not for mm. everybody. And then this brings up another right. whole tangent, you know, not all addicts are the same, you know, not everybody coming in meeting diagnostics 
criteria of substance use disorder or this disorder um, are the same, uh, requiring mm -hmm. the same, you know, with the same prognosis, same treatment planning and all that back to everybody's an individual. But that being said, you know, it opened up this whole wide new horizon of, wow, what's really possible and where are like you said, even going back to the 60s, 70s, you know, these just troves of research and data that, that really show how well these things were. Uh, and then now bridging that gap, even down into things like psychedelics on that, let's say, end of this further end of the spectrum of what's really out of the box, what's really kind of disrupting and right. dropping bombs in that world as we know it. Um, and, and back to like kind of what's a theme, nothing's everything, you know, um, things are yeah. tools, an arrow and a quiver. What you just described about one aspect of, of psychedelics is just that it's one arrow in the quiver, uh, a backing mm -hmm. up psychedelics aren't just one thing. And, and right. that's where there is this real big movement to almost you know, just make it all one thing, you know, and, and it, it just isn't. You're talking about a, a list of different potential medication substances. Psychedelic, by by nature of the term itself, just means mind manifesting. It was coined by mm -hmm. uh, I forget, it's a psychiatrist, uh, a professor from Stanford, somewhere out west, um, hmm. way back when. You know, it doesn't have yeah. clinical backing to it. Uh, so you have right. a, a list of, of medications or, or substances from, you know, things like mescaline, peyote on one end to MDMA, you know, completely yeah. engineered. Right. And psilocybin's the hot right. one out there. And so even about. things like ayahuasca, when you really break it down and what's happened, because it's all about the metabolites, it's, it's you know, and how the body right. metabolizes it. The body metabolizes that as MDMA, essentially. So that's why you would have you know, a multitude of different experiences. So back to like, what's going on, you know, and is that, you know, removal of ego and that kind of disassociation from self, that is a huge part of it. And it, mm -hmm. back to also, you know, not everybody's the same. And just like with other aspects of medicine or treatment, you know, well, what is going on? And let's match what would be the most appropriate course of treatment to kind of address the underlying root of what is going on to produce that desired outcome. Back to other, you know, kind of aspects of psychedelic. It's not always just the experience and, and what happens there, but it's even getting into the brain as an organ and, and as right. you know, a physical substance and what's going on physiologically. And, and you have with other compounds, ketamine in particular, where there's a, you know, hey, there's a reason that you have FDA approval um, MDMA now is in phase three clinical trial because you're also seeing with tremendous clarity back to research data you know, all of what's being done to show there's, there's, there's neuroplasticity, synopsis repair, real hardware things going on in addition to those software mm -hmm. updates. Uh, and and mm -hmm. one thing you described, yeah, has, has not been able to be accomplished in any facet of traditional psychotherapy, whether it's kind of Freudian, mm -hmm. analytical, any facet of cognitive behavioral. Uh, and yeah. a lot of that does have to do with that disassociation, that removal of ego or self. Like, you know, you can um, almost have an ability to look at things in a way that you would never have been able to look at in regards. And in right. some regards, 
the very underlying disorder that one might have is integral in preventing that ability to look. Trauma would be one example, right? Yeah. So a, a trauma response yeah, I mean, would be in, in the neural one. network would be to shut down yeah. certain pathways to almost disenable somebody from accessing and recalling certain memories or you know, it's not just that as a lot of traditional and disease model, very reduced, simplistic forms of addiction or other mental health. You know, it's all about the limbic system, just that prefrontal cortex and the, the base brain, you know, yeah. it's that lizard brain. And that's what gets hard for me sometimes, Peter, is you get respected experts or advocates, Dr. Gabor Mate, Johan Hari, who look at addiction separately differently than one thinks it comes from the result of trauma, childhood trauma specifically in Dr. Uh, Gabor Mate's case. And Johan Harry thinks it's um, a connection, uh, um, you know, relationship vulnerability type type issues. It's more, um, more uh, the inability to connect well with other people and, and ultimately yourself. And so you get, you know, as, as this guy out here in Iowa, who's lost two loved ones to this stuff, who has self battled with alcohol and gambling, you know, what's, what's the right amount of potion that can quote, fix me from these issues. And, and I've come to the realization that the problem with mental health is it's subjective. If I were to ask even clinicians, other than just the textbook definition, which let's just say that's not even available. So you can't Google mental health. And I asked you, write down in a couple sentences or a paragraph or 10 words that pop in your mind about what mental wellness, and you're going to write down some things. And then I'm going to write down some things and we're going to look at the list and you're going to say, I didn't think about finances, finances. I didn't think about spirituality. I didn't think about meaning and purpose. I was thinking about exercise and diet and meditation and yoga and, and uh, psychedelics and all these things for the mind, but I wasn't thinking about the rest of the stuff. And I think that's the challenge in the, as, as an advocate is, you know, you look at the number one cause of divorce is money, yet how much time do we spend talking to kids about money with their mental health planning? We don't. Zero. And kids graduate college with lots of debt, um, inability to come up with large down payments for their first homes, um, men menial paying jobs, uh, quite often no job. And, and again, as an advocate, we want to talk to mental health. We want to talk mental health kids about mindfulness. And they're like, well, screw that. I can't meditate because I don't have a job. I can't, I, or, or I'm 50 pounds overweight. You know, I, I, it's like, I think, I don't know. I, I get very frustrated in this siloed approach, this focus on one or two symptoms. And then we got this big game of whack-a-mole going on. I like exactly. to call. And I'm just trying to say, you know what, you're the, like you say, you're a recovering clinician. Well, you're still a clinician. Uh, I never have been. You you forget more than I'll ever know in my entire lifetime on these topics. What is the solution, especially, especially for Gen Z, let's say, you know, 12 to 26? What's the solution to get them in a better frame of mind with their mental wellness? And I don't, I don't know what the answer I is. I don't either, because I don't think there is any one answer. And I would never presume to think I could ever come up with it. You know, uh, I, I think the answer lies maybe more in process than in a product that hears, you know, what I could package as the answer. Perfect. Yep. It's always a process. It's the yeah. evolution. And right? so uh, that's how I would kind of frame that answer is the solution. 
the process that I could see being the effective process is one that we're, we're focusing a lot on, you know, how do we come but the average cons- the average consumer doesn't want process though, Peter. They want a pill. <laughs> they, they want a they want a you know? TED talk. I mean, and, and, and <laughs> you know, going back to disrupting paradigm shifting. Um, you know, right. what's what's a you know what's a symptom? What's a problem? You know, where's the tail? Where's the dog? And and the, the wild circle that's being run. And <laughs> with regards, you know, when we look at how do we pose some of these solutions, we also have to look at like. Well, what are the kind of existing paradigms that are going on out there? And in a very similar mm-hmm. way to like, if I were to work with an individual and say like, okay, we, you're here and you want to be there. Now let's look at what's right. stopping you from getting it. One of the first steps is like, let's break down, you know, in, in many regards, like your operating system, your algorithm, and, and try and understand that, you know, uh, your values, your belief systems, which is going to kind of shape you know, how you see everything that happens on, you know, a very like, uh, uh, frac, you know, exponential scale. So you have that as individuals, that's in family units, you know, that's how you have generational mm-hmm. trauma, belief systems and all of that communities, um, cultures. And, and so it just keeps expanding. So you have these kind of just as you might have as an individual, you know, what we can label as toxic, maladaptive value and belief systems. You have that also as a society where just what you said, I want a quick fix. I want a quick answer. Like that's what I need, mm-hmm. but there isn't one, you know, there is a, you know, what's yeah. a quick fix or quick answer to, to lose 20 pounds or to gain a level of fitness to perform at X, you know, way. Uh, so, you know, part of it has to go and kind of re-engineer and, and how we're even asking these questions, how we're choosing to answer them based on what we're looking at. Do you think it's possible that we're just overthinking this stuff? It's like Occam's razor, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, at, at the end of the day, and I can only go off me and my, my choose my choosing not to drink. I just decided that it was easier not to drink. And I just, I tricked my brain into not playing any narratives. I don't call myself sober. I don't count the days. I know what day I quit. I could drink today. I wouldn't punish myself. I would just say today I chose to drink tomorrow. I'll have another choice. And I've just, to me, I don't, I can go to a store a liquor store and I can go to the NA section and buy a case of NA beer and walk right by all the beer I liked. It doesn't pull at me. I don't. And it's like, I can't be the only one. There can't be just, you know, a handful of us out there like this. I was a raging alcoholic dude for when Seth died. I drank for 14 months, eight days a week, nine days a week. You know, I drank, I drank excessively and I just literally quit cold Turkey. And I'm like, okay. So when I talk to someone who say it's a disease and they're convinced it's a disease because their grandparents and great grandparents and all that. And it's like, even if it is a disease, isn't there an opportunity for you to just not believe that? I, I don't know. It's like, God dang. It's like, I, I think sometimes we just overcomplicate this stuff. I, I agree. And and there's a lot of research and data and, you know, that supports that in many ways. A, one, that the overwhelming majority and the, the huge subset of data and research, going back to one seminal study studying returning vets from Vietnam, raging heroin addicts. Yeah. And, uh, they came yep. back to the U.S. and why were the overwhelming majority of them able to, as we would define it, recover? 
I've seen that study. It's uh, amazing. To a lot yeah. of other variations of it or other, you know, similar lenses in which to try and evaluate things. And, and to your point, that was kind of the takeaway of it all is the, the overwhelming majority of people self-correct. The overwhelming majority of people. Yeah. And that, that was surprising when I heard that, Peter. I thought the overwhelming majority of people, uh, you know, struggle and, and battle it and all that. But a lot of, a lot of people are like me, right. they just quit. And so what we're really doing and back to why am I a recovering clinician? You know, why am I frustrated and, and kind of needing to disrupt is because uh, right. it should just be simple in many regards, you know, not so different than what are incredibly complex other aspects of medical, mental health, behavioral health you know, mm -hmm. issues that have exquisite solutions behind them. Yeah. But, but this space doesn't and largely because, and we touched on it in other ways, there is so much internal stigmatization, hoarding territoriality around you know, this way mm -hmm. is the only way any deviation variation means jails, institutions, and death for good reason. Yeah. But when you kind of, for that individual, like you pointed out that phenomenon, well, this worked for me, so it's got to work for you. You know, if you take that and, and I don't want to knock 12 steps, but if you take you know, what yeah. would be, let's say, a cultural appropriation of 12 step philosophy, like, all right, you know, one is too many, a thousand never enough, you know, off to the races, you end up in jails and institutions and death. You don't go to meetings. You're going to be that all that kind of stuff. It just just doesn't exit you know um just well my turn off at aa peter was my inability to succumb that there was something more powerful than than me and i just i'm like you know what i, I can look at a beer and it's not more powerful than me i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say i'm not gonna give in and I, that's just my competitive nature i guess and i and and the higher power thing was a very big turn off for me as well and for my wife, she wouldn't go to AA solely because of the higher power emphasis. And she's agnostic as I am. And we don't, we didn't want to complicate this whole thing by bringing in some celestial entity. I know a lot of people have to do that. I'm all for the utility of it. But for us and for me, those two things were turnoffs. Having to succumb to this, like, like, I'm, like I'm bowing down saying, you know what, I, I can't, I have to surrender my, my, my addiction to you. Someone take it away from me. I just... I just, I wasn't comfortable with that, Peter. I think a lot of people aren't. And it, for me, it's more than just comfort. It, it then gets into category where it can become even enraging in some regards, only because, and I don't want to bring up a sensitive topic, especially for you, but where the end result has been so often. And that is, you know, unfortunately, fatal results or detrimental results. Because you now imagine yeah. where it is, where it's posed as, here's the only solution. You've got to get on board yeah. or this is what's going to happen. There might be for whatever reason, just a complete incapacity for one to subscribe to that. So what's their takeaway? You know, th there's no hope. There's no success. There's no path. No father. Yeah. And yeah. You know, in, in well over a decade of practice, I, I can't count anymore. I got, you know, I ended up having to become almost detached emotionally from that phenomenon of just, seeing people and, and this is where you know because that philosophy gets yeah. then embedded in the criminal justice system and reimbursement yep. system you know yep. i would be liaising with drug court you know 
PL asking, well, are they going, did they get a sponsor? Oh, they must not be serious. Well, I'm working with them clinically and they're dead serious. They're doing everything they can. Mm -hmm. You can, you know, so back. Well, there's a whole nother subset of mental health concerns for the mental health advocates. Right. And so back to <laughs> a lot of them are underpaid and overworked and it's depressing every day because you're hearing everybody else's crap all day long and you got your own bag yeah. and you can't, you, it's hard to disassociate from And that. in this space, you know, and this is kind of what you said about, you know, kind of not wanting to take on certain naysayers or whatever, like here, somebody like me, who's coming from the world of traditional recovery programs and practices, um, very deeply networked in that world. And now, you know, fast forwarding to not only promoting, but putting into practice the use of psychedelics. Mm -hmm. uh, our docs were prescribing medical cannabis when appropriate for certain people. Um, mm -hmm. So a lot of people were telling me, you're killing people. How could you do that? And, and it was really disillusioning. But, but with all yeah. of the belief and vehemence, mm -hmm. that, you know, how could you do that? You know, what are you doing? Well, cause you probably get people that reach out to you and say, thank you. And you're like, that validates that you're doing the right thing. And then you get a handset of people that don't like it for whatever agenda they have. Um, and then you get a, a note in the mail saying, Hey, thank I'll you. Tell you what it's like, you go back and forth. Was, you know, one example, Navy SEAL back, you know, you know, the statistics of, of suicidality with Oh, nothing yeah. was working yep. spiraling out of control substances behavior suicidality the only potential course of treatment up until that point you know way long game out looking at potentially ect you know probably a month or so before you can really re actively engage that individual and have any hope to really sink in boom an hour after a ketamine infusion this individual is engaged suicide isn't that crazy? Down to a negligible yeah. amount. Yep. Um, and the ability to work with that individual over a course. And this was years ago, still in touch with that person yeah. who's flirting. It unlocked something. I'm sorry? It unlocked something in that it, person. Yeah. And that's where back to what we were talking about earlier, it really operated on multiple levels. You know, mm -hmm. ketamine in particular worked on a physiological level where it opened up new pathways, synapses and, and neuroplasticity that really healed aspects of the brain and areas that were shutting down and not working. There was and particular to ketamine being, uh, you know, a disassociative anesthetic, it's working on a completely different mechanism mm -hmm. within the brain. It's not working on the dopamine system. It's not working on the serotonin receptors like psilocybin is. It, it, you're disassociating. So at what would be a sub anesthetic dose, you're getting almost what you were referring to earlier, that, that dissolution of ego. So you're able to mm -hmm. look at and address things that you would never have been able to look at, not only emotionally, right. but in some regard, quasi physically, because your brain as a trauma response conditioned over what might have been decades is not allowing you to access so that, you know, almost like this computer system, you know, there's a bug there. Uh, and so yeah. you can really, I just think that's so intriguing. I just think it's so intriguing. And I think we're at a we're at a point, a tipping point in our society that I just don't know if we can afford to wait to get more data or get more information on certain things. People are dying 
800 a day, 800 a day in the United States from overdose, alcohol, and suicide. And, you know, by the way, I wouldn't that, be surprised if it was close to double, you know, when you look at. Well, yeah. And plus two, that's just the death statistics. Exactly. Think of the families that are destroyed and no death has happened yet. Yeah. You know, those are in the millions. So it's like, yeah. That just brings up another whole, you know, like I said, apologies again, it going on all kinds of tangents. Um, and okay. um, another huge, just systemic problem with this whole space that we're talking about is, you know, who we're talking about and, and the it, the what that's going on. And we're only treating the heart attacks after they happen. We're only talking about addressing these yeah. things after the crisis really hit. Back right. to your models yep. of other, you know, or how is modern medicine set up? You know, early intervention, yeah. preventative medicine. You know, why aren't we doing more things early on? And, uh, and so, yeah, that's just another big part of the process that would be leading to that solution. Well, I know when I look at your information online, I see the flow initiative. So maybe as we wrap up the show, maybe talk a little bit about, maybe we already have talked about it. Um, you know, what is that, what is that exactly? And if people have questions, what's the easiest way for them to reach you? The here? easiest way I'll kind of go in reverse order. The easiest way is through the website, yeah. www.flowinitiative.org. Um, and what the flow initiative is, is an evolution of a lot of what we talked about. Um, I was mm -hmm. very fortunate years ago to run that facility called the recovery spot. It doesn't really exist anymore. Um, but we were really out of the box. It was with one physician I grew up with. I've known my whole life, um, addiction psychiatrist for 25 years. Um, another physician anesthesiologist. So it's one of the pioneers in, in utilizing ketamine for a lot of these purposes. Uh, and that really blew the box from what traditional treatment was all about. Mm -hmm. You know, we were looking at a model of come in and a half hour, 90 minutes, I'll diagnose you, assess everything there is to go. At its heart, it was all about integration and comprehension. You know, how do we pull together the most right. wide envelope of practitioners that we can to achieve the outcomes that we need? Because every individual is just that an individual and different and it's all in the collaboration. So the flow initiative is almost an extension of that and that it's a coterie of different practitioners, largely, I don't want to say only licensed clinicians, you know, anything from physicians to licensed clinicians, but also, you know, the experiential side of things, you know, it's where Harry's, you know, work, you know, is, is impactful. You know, how can you, facilitate more connections? How can you instill more of a sense of purpose or just fulfillment? Mm -hmm. um, so an experiential um, angle of it as well. So you can check it out on the website. Um, and I'm always available for And LinkedIn, you're on LinkedIn. That's where we initially met. Um, and I'll have I'll have um, links to everything when this actually posts uh, down the road here. Um, any last things you want to add as we wrap up the show? Um, and I, again, I want to really thank you for the time you took to have this conversation. And I know you and I will be talking on, on many different levels in the future. Um, I, I, just to sum up in that sense, you know, that, that we need to really upend the paradigms and how we just 
embrace and our relationship with recovery, substance use disorders. Um, that's why I kind of hesitated because it's not just, you know, substance use disorders, but, but substance use also, um, how we need right. to blow up the box and what we view as, you know, appropriate, acceptable, um, the North Star is science, you know, research, medicine. Um, and we need to have more of these conversations. You know, and I'm, I'm very grateful for you, the platform that you're now creating, the vision that you have with Living Undeterred and, and how we can do more of that. Because back to solution and process, it's going to be more of this, you know, more collaboration, more mm -hmm. of these conversations, that's going to cause that disruption of what is just an unacceptable status quo right now. Yeah, you can't, you can't avoid life, you just lean into it. And life is death, life is chaos, life is uh, tragic, life is unfair, it's unjust, it's unfortunate. But if we don't have a ability to reframe life as beautiful and precious and, um, you know, wonderful and a gift, then your whole life is going to be torture and pain and suffering. And it's like, you don't have, it doesn't have to be that way. Again, we don't have to overthink life. We get up, we're alive. Great. Make the best day you can go to bed, get up again, you know? And I just think we, we are too captured with thought in the past and we're too polarized by anxiety in the future. And we got to find this common ground. And so I think with that, I want to thank you again for being on the show. Really. I noticed my, my, it's getting darker here. My son is setting here in Iowa. So I, in the last half hour, I'm like almost disappearing off my camera. Um, but I want to really thank you for being on the show. And uh, I, I, like I said, really look forward to um, tapping your your wisdom and knowledge for some of the projects that we have at Living Undeterred going into. I, I'd be honored to because I'm really a fan of the work you're doing and, and I'm very grateful for you, you know, people like you who are doing what you do. So I'm really looking forward to staying in touch, staying in collaboration. And it's really exciting what we're facing, because to your point, there are things that can be simple and very effective. And the solutions that are out there are really, really amazing. So, um, Yeah, I mean, like I said, doing this podcast, I meet people every day that have been through some amazing things and, and they seem to be, you know, progressing and taking advantage of the process of life and the evolution of, of self. And then I see others that just can't do that. And so that gives me validation that if I can glean information from those that can pass it on to those that are struggling, then we can, you know, provide a better environment, a, be a better lived experience for more people. So keep living undeterred, my friend. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, we'll talk Thank soon. You, okay. Jeff. Stay well. Talk soon.